Welcome to Pivot, a podcast for church leaders, co-sponsored by Luther Seminary's Faith Lead and Lead. Welcome to Pivot. Today's episode is on cultivating community. I'm Terry Elton from Luther Seminary. And I'm Scott Cormode from Fuller Seminary. And I'm Louise Johnson, and I work with LEAD. Well, I just want to share with you that this week I've been listening to and working with four different cohorts, um, of mostly of pastors, and what I'm hearing from them as I'm walking with them in the, these weeks is just this incredible tension and debate around whether or not we open up. It's been a really interesting week just to kind of hear how polarized and politicized that conversation has become and how that is beginning to affect our communities. You know, Louise, at the congregation that I'm at, we've been having those in our place. And we're trying to figure out what format worship will take. And so the staff were sitting together thinking about this. Do we do live Zoom? Do we record? What are the pros and cons? Uh, do we move to a different format where we move in small groups and we have people do it in that way? And it was interesting. One of the staff members said this, and it really kind of took a pause for us. She said, I love the facade of being together in Zoom worship when everybody is in theory in the room. And the line was jarring because there, there's two things. One, not everybody is in the room. There are all kinds of people that aren't able to get quote on Zoom or have the technology. And the second thing is that one of our core values is engaging community. And just having your face on a screen does not equal engaging community. So one of the things we were asking ourselves, which I think is something that is facing us today, is are we willing to pivot toward the kind of community our Christian faith calls us to. You're right to bring up this idea of community. What's interesting to me is that we have this assumption that we had community before all this COVID stuff hit. I don't know about your congregation, but our congregation is such that on a Sunday morning, we have our service and then we have coffee together. And the coffee hour is the place where we have community. But Think about what would happen. I mean, there's almost a rehearsed back and forth set of conversations. You walk up to somebody, how are you this week? I'm fine. Now, they could be dying on the inside, but the correct answer is still, I'm fine, because that's kind of how we do things. And then we have this sense that if I hide my pain from you, perhaps I can hide it from myself. I don't want people to know because then I become vulnerable. But the thing of it is, is that any kind of community that's worth having requires a vulnerability. We need to be able to have some sense in which on a Sunday morning, we don't dress up in our Sunday best emotionally. We don't go and just show people the things that we want them to see, but somehow instead we can show them the things that only Christians can share with each other because we care for one another. Not... and. And as we think about whether we are online or we are in our newly reconstructed, gathered together communities, we don't want to re replicate the I'm fine of the world. 
We don't want it online and we don't want it in person. We need to be striving for something else. We need to be able to create some kind of a space where it's okay to share our vulnerabilities, where it's okay for us to be able to talk about, well, we've talked in the last few weeks about listening and about empathy. Well, that kind of thing cannot happen without vulnerability. We can't connect to people. We can't have any kind of empathy without vulnerability. And we can't have community without vulnerability. So we simply can't go back to replicating something that wasn't good enough in the past. Yeah, so then the question about opening up becomes the same question in a kind of different form, right? So how do we open up to one another? And maybe we have an opportunity now in this uh, space and time to think again about what that could look like and how we could be community together. This past week, too, I, I, I read the Moravian Daily Texts um, pretty much every day. And so I was reading, we're reading through the Gospel of Mark, and there's, of course, this pattern in Mark where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, some combination of them, um, are asking Jesus what I think of in leadership terms as a technical question, often a question about some aspect of the law that is problematic. And of course, they're looking mostly to entrap him, but they reveal in, the, in those questions the kinds of things that are important. And what struck me this time reading through Mark was that Jesus, not always directly, but eventually gets to, again and again, a different way of responding to those questions. So often he doesn't respond to a question like, whose wife will she be in heaven, um, when they're asking him about the law of leveret marriage in the resurrection. But he gets to, what does it mean to love God, to love our neighbors, and to love ourselves? And so what I love about that move is that a technical question that I think probably only the religious authorities would even know enough to ask or care about suddenly becomes this both demanding and expansive community that Jesus is creating in and among them. And in and among us. So I think the gospel becomes expansive both by who gets included in it, but it also becomes demanding. So if you think about the, the rich young man who comes to Jesus, right, he wants another law to follow or a technicality that he can lean into. But in fact, what Jesus says is go and sell everything and then come and follow me. So that the community then, the shape of the community is both broader and deeper than I think, than we often, I think, give it credit for. Tell us about your encounter at the paint store. Oh, right. Yeah. So this is a great, a good friend of mine named Jane. Jane was telling me about in the early days of shelter in place directives. She was saying that, she's telling me about this encounter of going to a paint store and, you know, the, the typical thing. She pulled up, she called a number and a woman came and put the paint in her trunk. And then Jane had rolled down her window. And of course they were at quite a distance, maybe 10 feet or something. But Jane just said to her, you know, how are you doing? And Jane described this interaction between she and the woman from the paint store, which she said was about a 10-minute conversation. And Jane was reflecting that 
even four months ago, that that would have been a 30 second interaction over a cash register. But that the shared experience of being in the thick of a global pandemic gave them a, a kind of ground for a different way of relating and talking to one another. So that I think what we're hearing is not only from scripture, but maybe even from the people around us, the kind of community that we're needing. You're right. I mean, the question, whose wife will she be in the resurrection, is the kind of question that only religious professionals ask. And when we get scared, we retreat to questions. As Christian leaders, we retreat to questions that only matter to religious professionals. Questions like, when will we open? It's, much, you know, it's not that, the, that that question is only for religious professionals. It's the technical aspects of it that you were talking about. All the pieces of it get caught up, and we lose sight of the fact that the whole point of it is to create community. Whether or not we are open, we should be after community. So the question we should be asking ourselves is, how do we create community? Is it how do we create or create the context for community, whether it is online, whether it is opening, whether whatever it is, don't get caught up in the kinds of things that like you call them technical questions, but get caught up in the bigger questions of community. And then you get back to the paint store, your friend Jane asked a question, how are you doing? And the correct answer to that in most contexts is I'm fine. Just like on the patio, just like um, in the church hall, just like whenever we have the, um, the, the church gathering. But somehow something about this moment allowed her to say, well, let me tell you a little bit about that. And then Jane could take the time to listen. That's what we're looking for. What we're looking for is how do we get our people back to a place that allows them to really pay attention one to another. So this conversation reminds me of a great book that I just recently read called Beyond the Screen by Andrew Zersky, and he's looking at teenage use of social media. And he begins the book with some research that highlights why are teens so driven to do this um, social media is really not by the novelty of technology, but it's driven by friendship or a need to be connected even when they're not physically in the same space. It's really about a desire for intimacy. He has this great line. I just, I want to give it to you from him. He said, presence in absence is an important experience because so often teenagers encounter absence in presence. The feeling of being alone in a crowd is the feeling of absence in presence. I think sometimes we have let the facade of physically being present in the church building to equal community, that we're actually present with one another, when actually there's a longing for something deeper. What I wonder about is if we actually are listening to the longings of the people entrusted to our care, what is that saying? about what kind of community that they're longing for that we can cultivate with these gospel-centered promises that we have from Christ. So now in this pandemic, we have seen our need to belong and for connection. 
And without it, we're less than who God has actually created us to be. But without the coffee hour community, what, how do we get at this profound challenge and see what a core dimension it is to living out the faith? You're absolutely right, Terry. Uh, I love this idea that attention is not dependent on physical proximity. That we know people who are great at paying attention, who are talking to me on the phone or on Zoom or whatever. And we know people that are lousy at paying attention that are standing right in front of me. Attention is not dependent on physical proximity, but attention, a listening is often dependent on paying attention to what really matters. We talked uh, a few weeks ago about listening to the longings and losses of the people entrusted to our care. What are the things that matter most to our people? One of the things that I work, do a lot of work with the Fuller Youth Institute, and the Fuller Youth Institute, we talk a lot about how every young person, teenager, young adult, every young person is constantly dealing with questions of identity, belonging, and purpose. And so when we uh, instruct adults on how to, how to pay attention to young people, we talk about paying attention to identity, belonging, and purpose. Well, I would argue that every human being, everybody that you know is constantly paying attention to and addressing questions of identity, belonging, and purpose. And what has this pandemic, what has this sequestering in place, what has that done? Is it's changed all the basic questions we have about identity, belonging, and purpose. And so ultimately, we need to go back to this, this biblical idea of koinonia. What is koinonia? We think of koinonia, we translate it as community. But we don't want the kind of community, that with the kind of fellowship that is this fake fellowship that happens at the coffee hour where we all say, fine. I would argue that the practice of community is ultimate, the practice of koinonia is ultimately about mutual obligation. It is that I am connected in, to you in such a way that I am obligated to you, and you are connected to me in such a way that uh, you are obligated to me. And that we find that kind of your fate and my fate are bound together, your life and my life are bound together. That's what koinonia means. And whatever it is we have to do, we have to think about how whether it is the coffee hour or the, or what do we do on Zoom or whatever it is, it's got to be designed to create this kind of koinonia that is mutual obligation. I'm a lifelong liturgical church person. And one of the things that I really appreciate about what you're saying, Scott, is that I feel like that koinonia, or at least the practices of koinonia, show up in cues in the liturgy. And I really began to grow in my understanding of that when um, I had the privilege of being in a seminary community with uh, my good friend Claudio Carvales. And Claudio was a, a liturgical scholar who loved the, the mass, the form of the liturgy, but was working to kind of open that up into more common language um, that was more accessible to people who weren't lifelong churchgoers. And so he would do this beautiful thing with the confession and forgiveness. He would stand in the middle of the, the gathered body, the assembly, and at the beginning of the liturgy, and he would say, 
this is now the time of confession, and that is the time that we come before God as a community and where God invites us to come as who we are with all of our burdens, with all of our blessings, with all of the things that we carry, with all the ways in which we imagine we are not enough, with all of the guilt and shame that comes with knowing that we've fallen short this week. We bring all of that here together before God and we lay it down and then we have a chance to hear again how much we are loved by God and how the power of Jesus Christ gives us uh, forgiveness in God, that we are set free, that we're um, loved, that we're brought before God in, in a new kind of way. And he just had a beautiful way of bringing that liturgy to life. But what always struck me about that was that as intimate and I think loving and communal, right? It, it, it modeled this sense of being of mutual obligation, right? Of coming together with all that, that we struggle with before God. But then, as you said, when we'd get to coffee hour, it was, again, how are you today? And it didn't matter what I was carrying or what was going on inside me. I said, fine. And so did all the other people. And I, I just came to find over the years, like, I actually, if I'm honest, when I go to church, I hardly ever go to coffee hour anymore. Because I find that that's one of the loneliest places to go. Because all of the, what the liturgy opens up in me, and then what happens afterwards, there's a disconnection in that practice. There's such a mixed message in what you just said. The message of the gospel is bring yourself in all the rawest terms, in all the vulnerabilities, and God will meet you there. And that we in, in our churches will embody that community. And then you go out into the coffee hour and nobody listens and no, you know, nobody reveals. We were talking about this and we began to wonder what takeaways, what could leaders do? We're going to say this about coffee hour and people, there's no one who's going to say to this, oh, well, we've never heard of that before. These are things we've encountered before. What can leaders do? <laughs> well, let me, let me give you two ideas. And then I think uh, Terry has another one. One is make it discussable. What I mean by that is, is that whenever there's a mixed message, a mixed message like we embody Christian community, but nobody here gets to practice it in vulnerability. Whenever there's a, a mixed message, one of the things we know as scholars is that that tends to destroy an organization's ability to be able to accomplish its mission. And we also know the way to defeat it is to make it discussable. We'll put up a couple of resources if you want to click on them to where it's some articles about how to follow up with this. But the idea of discussable is that this mixed message is only powerful so long as no one's discussing it. But if you can actually get your leaders, say, for example, the, the sermon or, or at the prayers of people or something like that to be able to say, we want a, a coffee hour that is vulnerable, but we then keep practicing something that's not, if you can name that mixed message and make it discussable, it will lose its power. But the other thing that I would do is if I was a leader is I would, if I was a pastor, I would be training my leaders. My church, we've got what, 12, 14 elders. I would start with them and I would train them to do just three things at coffee hour, reveal, listen, and follow up. 
Reveal means show the vulnerability that we model it, that, that we're talking about. Listen means listen to other people's vulnerability. And finally, follow up. Because I can't tell you how many times I've decided, okay, I'm going to defeat this idea of vulnerability. I'm going to actually practice it. And I can practice it um, at the coffee hour and people will say, will be genuinely interested and never follow up and never remember. And it's as if it went into a void. And so if we, what can our leaders do? They can make it discussable and then they can learn to reveal, to listen and to follow up. I think the other piece that we can do as leaders is not only uh, shift our questions, but name and acknowledge our own vulnerabilities. You brought up, Scott, that in the, one of the practices of the liturgy is prayers of the people. And that can be either really in our head or, or really safe, or that can be really vulnerable. I happen to be at a church that begins its worship by having people offer up prayers that they want to be included in the prayers of the people. And they had been doing that when they were gathered in the same space. And that has been a practice that has continued with all the different kinds of technology that's available. And what comes of that is not only the sense that there's brokenness around us, that there's not this facade that everybody else has it together and I'm the only one who's grieving or whatever, but it also is a way that people feel tangibly supported and accompanied. I'll give you an example. So in the midst of COVID, uh, a family member uh, found out they had cancer at our house. That kind of sucked. I'll just say it. Mm -hmm. Not only does it suck to hear the news in any time, but to, then to know that in that vulnerable moment, you have to go to the doctor and you have to go get tests in the hospital. And you cannot physically be together to support people. All the things that we got to do even several months ago were taken away. And I debated, do I tell this congregation about this vulnerability in my life? And I decided to do that. And not only, again, make it discussable, it's been interesting not only to feel the prayer support, but to have people at meetings or other places or email me and say, I just want to check in with you. How are you doing? And they're actually wanting to listen. There's that follow-up, as you said, Scott, and there's deep listening. They're not trying to fix anything. They're not trying to tell me it's okay. They're just trying to surround me with that. And I'll just tell you, that experience has allowed me to be far more vulnerable in other communities with other people of faith that I maybe don't see on a regular basis. And it has made all the difference to me in this time. Well, I hope that this episode on cultivating community has been a way to think about what if we could pivot from asking questions about opening buildings to pivot to ask questions about how do we open up space and even our hearts for cultivating the kind of community that the gospel calls us to. Thanks for joining us for this episode of our Pivot Podcast. For more leadership resources from LEAD, you can go to waytolead.org 
or from Faith Leads, go to faithlead.luthersem.edu.